I believe we all would agree that the events of the past three years have presented serious challenges to every social institution in our, in our culture, be it marriage, family, the workplace, governments, and certainly local churches. Challenges like the COVID pandemic, political upheaval, race relations, economic realities, etc. These challenges have threatened to unravel the very fabric of these social institutions. Division and discord have been rampant, even among institutions that were seemingly solid and unified beforehand. Beacon Community Church has not been immune to these challenges. From my vantage point as a local church pastor, I can honestly say one of the heaviest challenges and sources of discouragement in my own life and leadership has been the disunity over race relations, particularly how people perceive and process racial injustice. I'll be the first to admit I am no expert on this issue. I'm a fellow pilgrim on the pathway of restoration, a man with my own blind spots and biases, a sinner who needs forgiveness daily. That's where I'm at, and that's likely where all of us are at. The reality is Scripture speaks to this issue of race. From the very beginning, Scripture speaks to the issue. We're currently in the midst of a sermon series in the book of Genesis that we've entitled God the Creator and Redeemer. God the Creator and Redeemer. And in this series, we're exploring the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. So first in the series, we focus on God's masterful work of creating the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And then for the next couple weeks, we're slowing down and giving focused attention on one portion of Genesis chapter 1. And that is the reality that human beings have been created in the image of God. The doctrine of the image of God. So we're unpacking the image of God and its impl implications. And so here are three implications that we've slowed down to consider. Last Sunday, we considered the image of God in gender. This Sunday, we consider the image of God in race. And next Sunday, we'll consider the image of God and the unborn. So the image of God in gender, the image of God in race, and the next Sunday, the image of God and the unborn. Three heavy, very sensitive, but very important biblical themes that all flow out of a healthy understanding of the image of God. Now, the focal text for these three weeks on the image of God is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Let's consider this section. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The image of God means that we find who we truly are in relation to God. We resemble him. We reflect him. 
we represent him in this world. We are not God, we reflect God. We speak, we steward, we delight, we create. This is all a reflection of God and his character. This is the image of God. And the reality is, the image of God gives every single person who's ever been born, every single person, inherent dignity, inherent significance, meaning, and value, no matter their age, their ability, their gender, their ethnicity. We must honor the image of God in other human beings. And this is our aim in this little mini-series on the image of God within the broader series of Genesis. We want to honor the image of God in fellow human beings. And so today our topic is the image of God and race. The image of God and race. Lots of landmines here. Lots of hurt here. Lots of blind spots here. An area of our lives desperately in need of the right kind of dialogue. An area of our lives desperately in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. Almost three years ago, I preached a series of sermons from Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And in there, Micah says, He has shown you, O people, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I preached this sermon series in the aftermath of the George Floyd tragedy. And some in our congregation felt that I said too little, and some in our congregation felt that I said too much. And hence the nature of the issue, hence the divisiveness of the issue and the need for the right kind of dialogue on it going forward. And that's simply what we want to seek to do today, to continue the conversation biblically, reflecting on God's word and walking together in grace and truth. This is obviously a very sensitive subject. And could I make a request of you? If I say something today in the sermon that gives you pause, that perhaps you don't agree with, that perhaps offends you, would you please come and speak with me or one of the elders? Please don't slip into isolation. Please don't kind of keep it to yourself. We, we would love to talk to you. We as elders like to think that we're approachable people. I think we are. We would love to talk to you. We'd love to have a conversation about your, your thoughts, your concerns, your, your questions. We're grateful for this congregation. And we love each and every one of you. And we want to be spiritually healthy and relationally unified. And having hard conversations is, is part of that. And so I just would, would kindly ask that of you. This is, this is dicey, sensitive. Let's just work together and have, have conversations, give each other grace going forward. So let's consider some definitions first. In his book entitled, Weep With Me, how Lament Opens a Door for Racial Reconciliation. Uh, Pastor Mark Vrogrup defines the term race. He says, first we need to acknowledge that the Bible talks about one race, the human race. 
Every man or woman reflects the same image of God. When the Bible distinguishes between people, it is on the basis of ethnicity, tribes and peoples and languages. I prefer the term ethnicity because it's closer to the biblical text and it connects people to their geographic and cultural origins. However, the term race is more commonly used in our culture. We need to understand the background of this term. Race in American history is a social construct. In other words, our society created the term and defined it. Race deconstructed ethnicity, i.e. European, African, Asian, into two categories merely related to the color of one's skin, white or black or colored. White became an all-encompassing category based on the color of one's skin, not ethnicity. What's more, the creation of the term was associated with a superiority and an inferiority complex. Well, what about racism? This word takes the definition of race and systematizes the ideology of superiority, inferiority in language, in laws, and in culture. Racism is the unfair treatment of other people based upon the belief of their inferiority. Racism uses skin color for sinful partiality. A partiality that, that James, for example, speaks of in James chapter 2, verse 13. So racism uses skin color for sinful partiality. Raci racism can be explicit, outward and visible. It can also be implicit, more under the radar, such that it can, we can be utterly blind to it in our own lives as it festers within our hearts and shapes the way we think about people, the way we perceive them, the way that we interact with them people created in the image of God. To accompany our Genesis 1 passage, I also want to explore a passage with you in the New Testament. And so if you would, let's turn together in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and the Bibles we provided on your chairs, you can find that on page 966. 2 Corinthians 5, page 966 on those hardcover Bibles that you have on your chairs. I'm going to read uh, verses 16 through 21. The Apostle Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16 through 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this is an important passage for processing sin in general in our lives. Whether it be sin we're aware of, sin that we're unaware of, sin that we readily see in our lives, sin that perhaps we don't readily see, our specific area of focus will be the sin of racism this morning. We understand that the passage speaks to sin more broadly than that. 
So this passage confronts us in the sinful way we can regard people, the way we can view people unrighteously. That's what we see here. It confronts us in the sinful way we can regard people. Secondly, it offers us a way of forgiveness for the sinful way we can regard people. It offers a way of forgiveness for the sinful way we regard people. And then thirdly, it engages us in the ongoing work of reconciliation. It, it engages us in the ongoing work of reconciliation in two dimensions. A reconciliation that the gospel accomplishes on the human-to-God axis, the vertical axis, but also as a way to picture that vertical reconciliation, we're called to a reconciliation on the horizontal axis between humans and other humans, people and other people. It's the ministry of reconciliation. So that's our outline for this morning. God confronts our sin. God offers us a way of forgiveness. And then God engages us in his work of reconciliation. God confronts our sin. God offers us a way of forgiveness. And then God engages us in the work of reconciliation. So 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 through 21, spells out the implications of the gospel. The previous context, the previous passage, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 15, make this powerful claim that the gospel of Jesus Christ compels us to a new way of life. The gospel changes us and sets us on a different course. In verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul says, the love of Christ displayed through his death on the cross controls us. It compels us. It moves us to no longer live for ourselves. That is in accordance with our sinful nature, in accordance with the flesh. No longer live for yourself, but to live for him, Jesus, who died for our sake and was raised. The gospel compels us. It, it moves us forward to live a different way, to deny the old way and to follow in the new way of Christ. In verse 16, Paul confronts the old way of life that a Christian is to depart from. He confronts a pattern of thinking, a pattern of living that is destructive, that is not right. A pattern of living that Jesus Christ is ready and willing to change, to transform. He says, verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. What does Paul mean by that? We regard no one according to the flesh. When Paul uses the word flesh in his letters, he's more often than not referring to spiritual realities. The word flesh refers to the sinful fallen nature within every human being. And the sinful fallen ways of the world that we all operate in. This is the meaning of the word flesh here in verse 16. Paul's saying we no longer regard people, we no longer view people, we no longer treat people according to our sinful nature or according to the fallen ways of the world. This is the old way that we should have departed from. We no longer view people that way. Notice how Paul gives an example in the rest of verse 16. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Paul previously viewed the Lord Jesus Christ according to his own sinful nature. He viewed Christ the wrong way according to the fallen thinking of his own mind and of his own culture. Before his conversion, Paul viewed Jesus the wrong way. 
He viewed Jesus as a false messiah. He hated Christ and he hated the Christians who followed Christ. He sought to drag them into prison, to execute them. He viewed Christ according to his sinful flesh. He perceived of Christ the wrong way. He was one of many Jews who viewed Christ the wrong way, who viewed Jesus as a phony Messiah. This way of regarding Christ, of viewing Christ, was wrong, and it was, in fact, destructive. And friends, throughout history... Human beings have often viewed one another according to the flesh. According to our own sinful nature, operative within a sinful culture. We have a propensity of viewing other people created in the image of God according to our flesh. According to a sinful way, the old way that Christ invites us to depart This way of viewing people according to the flesh is assessing people, perceiving people, valuing people according to their skin color, for example. This is the sin of racism. It is one of the applications that you can view somebody according to the flesh, to view somebody according to your sinfulness. It's one application of perceiving somebody the wrong way. Accordance, in accordance with your flesh. So can I ask you, how do you view people who look differently than you? Within the deep recesses of your heart, how do you view people of different races? What fears do you have about them? What suspicions do you have about them? What stereotypes have formed in your mind in the midst of your own sinfulness or a family that you grow up in or a culture that you're accustomed to? In what ways might we regard people of different races the wrong way according to our sinful flesh? Overlooking the beautiful fact that they're created in the image of God. Racism is an explicit or implicit belief or practice that qualitatively distinguishes or values others on the basis of skin color. It's viewing people created in the image of God the wrong way, according to our flesh. And this pattern of thinking, this pattern of living is destructive. It is harmful. Racism is possible across all ethnic backgrounds, isn't it? It's possible in every sector, every society, every ethnicity. More often than not, it's most common, most subtle among the majority group in a country. And so in the United States, that is among those who are white. Certainly white people in America can be racist towards a variety of groups. But historically, historically in this country, our deepest area of racism as a nation has been towards African-Americans. That's the history that we have. Relationships are often a spiritual barometer of our hearts. Relationships reveal our values. The issue of 
interracial marriage, for example, is one of the ways to discern our hearts, to identify ways that we regard people sinfully. Can I ask you this morning, how, how do you view interracial marriage? Ask yourself, whether you have children or not, would I allow my child to marry a Christian of another race? And more than allow it, would I embrace it? Would I allow my daughter to marry an African-American man? And if you wouldn't, why? What is behind that thinking? What informs your thought process? What drives your thinking? I grew up in a context where interracial marriage was called into question. Sadly, it's part of the fallen familial system with which I was raised. I remember questions circulating with my own family context. What do the children of interracial couples do? Where do they find their belonging? Where do they connect? As if connection and belonging required ethnic homogeneity. That's not the gospel. The gospel creates a many-colored kingdom. It's a many-colored people who look differently but are bound together by the blood of Jesus Christ. Asking where children of interracial couples connect is viewing people the wrong way. It's, it's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 5, verse 16. We no longer regard other people according to the flesh. We no longer view people according to what our sinful hearts say or what our sinful cultural or familial systems say. It's wrong. It's destructive. It dishonors the image of God in others. And I had to own that and repent of that and depart from that the old way and follow Christ on the new way. So where does racial injustice toward people of color exist in our hearts? We've got to ask these hard questions. Just like we come together as a church every Sunday to confess our sins, we do what David does in Psalm 139, verses 23. Search me, O God, and test my hearts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We've got to ask probing questions. Where does racial injustice toward other people of color exist in our hearts? How are people of color hurting in our culture? The effects of hundreds of years of slavery and the legacy of Jim Crow laws and segregation have created deep and lasting hurt and distrust in our culture among people of color. I remember in April of 2018, I was visiting one of our church partners in South Carolina, just outside of Greenville, South Carolina. I had a chance to preach at Pastor Fred's church in the Sunday morning service, Lonsville Baptist Church. And he was kind that evening to take me to another friend's church a few miles away, First Mount Moriah Baptist Church. That's a mouthful. But I went and preached on a Sunday night. They had this beautifully new, new constructed facility. Pastor Bryant was so kind. They gave Beacon a check afterwards. It's just a beautiful picture of partnership. And then after he said, hey, I want to show you something. And he walked me outside the new building into the old building, the historic building that still stood, built in 1840. And he took me into the church and he took me up into the balcony, huge balcony. 
And he said, Dane, do you know what this is? I said, no, I don't know what this is. He said, this is the slave quarter. I said, wow, it's huge. It's a massive balcony. Yes, this was a wealthy church. And you could tell the wealth in a southern church based upon the size of its balcony because the balcony held the slaves. And then I said, hey, what's the, what's the ring on the, the pillar in the balcony? What's that iron ring? He said, Dane, that's where the slave owners chained their slaves to. The iron ring, they chained them so they wouldn't run away during church. And I looked over the balcony and I could just pit, close my eyes and envision a pastor just like me, just like me, preaching the gospel just like I'm doing right now. Preaching the glories of the gospel, opening God's word Sunday in, Sunday out, preaching a freedom from sin in Christ, while precious people created in the image of God were bound to the poles in the balcony. And it just turned my stomach. Friends, we have a history in our country. And it does have impacts into the present. I understand by God's grace, we, we, we've got to depart the old and move forward to the new. We, we, God's grace overcomes our history. It, it does. But it also, it, in understanding the history helps us with our empathy as we engage in conversations, in hard conversations between majority and minority groups, people of all different colors. We've got to understand our history and the pain for our black brothers and sisters. It's real, it's deep. These personal stories of pain of our brothers and sisters of color are many. It is the heart of Christ to listen well, to lean into them, to love them by listening. We have to truly hear what our friends of color are saying about their experience in America. Are we listening? Are we empathizing? Do we feel their pain? One of my closest friends and co-laborers at Beacon was a man named Aaron Gray. Aaron was an original member of our church plant team. He and his wife, Nadim, and their four children were the first family to raise their hands in 2014 when we began to build a church plant team from Hope Fellowship Church, where I was serving previously, to, to start this church here in Belmont. Aaron said to me after the service and said, hey, that's, we want to go. We want to go. Dear friend of mine, Aaron died suddenly of a heart attack eight months ago at his home. It's been a massive loss for his family. It's been a massive loss for, for our church. He loved and served Jesus well and is in the glorious arms of Jesus now. Aaron was African-American and he was generous with his time with me over the years as he talked with me about his experience as a black man. A few years ago, Aaron was kind to share with me an experience he had while in college at Austin P. State in Tennessee. Aaron had a sociology professor while in college in the mid-1990s, a trained PhD earned tenured professor of sociology at Austin P. who said publicly in a class, Aaron was the only black man in the class. This professor said, it's a proven fact that the capillaries are more narrow in the brain of an African-American because those capillaries are more narrow, they carry less oxygen, and the less oxygenated brain of an African-American has lower functionality. 
African Americans are biologically bound to be less intelligent as a result. This is not 1954. This is 1994. A black man, the only black man in the lecture hall is hearing that from a PhD trained professor. It's dead wrong, dead wrong. The personal stories of pain of our brothers and sisters of color are many. The personal stories in this room of our brothers and sisters of color are many. Are we listening? Are we leaning into them? Are we empathizing? I recently was challenged by an empathy test while reading a book I referenced earlier in the sermon, Weep With Me, How Lament Opens a Door for Racial Reconciliation by pastor and author Mark Vrogrup. He shared this testimony from a fellow African-American pastor named Micah Edmondson. Micah Edmondson pastors New City Fellowship Presbyterian Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Here was Micah's story. Micah says, my wife has to beg me, a grown 37-year-old man, not to go out to Walmart at night, not because she's afraid of the criminal element, but because she's afraid of the police element. Because she knows that when the police see me, they aren't going to see Micah Edmondson, pastor of New City Fellowship Presbyterian Church. When they see me, they aren't going to see Micah Edmondson, PhD in systematic theology. When they see me, all they're going to see is a black man out late at night. And she knows we're getting stopped at 10 times the rate of everybody else, arrested at 26 times the rate of everybody else, and killed at five times the rate of everybody else. Mark Vrogrup then asked us, his readers, this question. When you hear this testimony from Micah Edmondson, where did your heart go first? Did you gravitate toward the statistics? Did you think, where did he get those numbers? Did you hear his comment about being afraid of the police and think, that's ridiculous? Or were you able to weep with an African-American pastor whose wife is afraid for him to visit Walmart at night because of how he might be perceived? Does our brother's statement cause you to want to understand him and hear why he feels that way, or do you immediately want to argue with him? While curiosity about statistics may be the habit of thoughtful people, do you find yourself minimizing the concern of this pastor and his wife? Is their concern also your concern for them? Now friends, I understand there is great complexity here. Hear me, hear me. There is great complexity here. Are all police officers racist? No, absolutely no. Is the role of a police officer one of the most difficult public service roles to fulfill? Yes, absolutely yes. They make split second decisions in dangerous situations. It's entirely difficult, exceedingly difficult. We need to be grateful for much of their work. Do some police officers abuse their position of authority? Yes. Have our African-American brothers and sisters been disproportionately impacted? I believe there is evidence for that, though we may disagree about the exact statistics. But given the history of, our, of hurt in our country, if Christians can't first empathize with stories and the fears of our African-American friends, Something is drastically wrong. If a black brother or black sister pours out their heart to you, their fears to you, and your first response in your mind or from your mouth is, are you sure about those numbers? 
Are you sure that was what was going on? Yes, we need to drive for truthfulness and accuracy. Yes, that is a conversation we have to have. But if we can't empathize and lean into them, we'll never have the conversation. We must lean into people's stories. Empathy towards our brothers and sisters of color perhaps is a growth area for you this morning, for me this morning. You see, empathy and lament provides a pathway forward, a pathway of dialogue, a pathway of restoration. Are we leaning in? Are we loving our friends of color by listening to them? First, this text confronts us in the sinful way we can regard people, the way we can view people. Second, it offers us a way of forgiveness for the sinful way we regard people. Paul speaks of a powerful transformation in the rest of this passage. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The former pattern of living and thinking is gone. The new pattern of living and thinking has come. The way of the flesh is gone. The way of Christ has come. Do you see the dichotomy? Do you see the transformation? The destructive way of regarding people has gone. The healthy way of regarding people has come. The way of racism is gone. The way of love has come. This is the work that Jesus Christ alone can accomplish in the lives of human beings. It's a dramatic transformation. How does it happen? What does Paul say in verse 18? All this is from God. The work of transformation comes from the hand of God. Only God can change sinful hearts. The God of the gospel is our only hope on this issue in the world of viewing people the wrong way. The gospel is the answer. The gospel, the, the reconciling blood of Jesus Christ, all of it is from God. That is our hope in this situation. We need to be reconciled with God first. Our sin is first and foremost an affront to God. Our racism towards other human beings is first and foremost an affront to God. We stand guilty before him. We need forgiveness. We need reconciliation. God knows. He plums the depths of our hearts. There's no hiding from him. He knows all of our sins. Because of our sin, we deserve his judgment, his righteous wrath. We stand desperately in need of forgiveness from him. And this is what Jesus alone provides. Verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So a person who's in Christ means they're united with Jesus, inseparably united with Jesus by faith in Christ. They're reconciled to God when they're in Christ by faith, made right with God is what reconciliation means. Forgiven of all their sins, no matter what they are. Fully forgiven, no matter what you've done. Racism included, no matter what they are, you're forgiven if you trust in Christ. How is this possible? How does this happen? Well, he no longer counts our sins against us because they've all been transferred to Christ's account. The infinite sin in our account was transferred to Jesus Christ's account, and the infinite perfection in Christ's account was transferred to our account. It's a massive exchange that is the core of our salvation. 
Everything bad in us went on Jesus' shoulders at the cross, and everything good in him came to us. A glorious and massive exchange takes all of our sin. We receive all of his perfection. We see this in verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. For our sake God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. The perfect one shouldered all of our sin at the cross. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Sinners become righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. Sinners become perfect before a holy God by faith in Jesus Christ. No longer do we stand guilty. We are forgiven, full, and free in Christ. Perhaps you've come to grips with your own sin today. That's the beauty of preaching of the gospel. You, by faith in Christ, can be forgiven of all of your sins, whatever they are. If it's the sin of viewing people the wrong way, harboring harmful thoughts towards other people, racism in your own heart, you can be forgiven of that. Perhaps it's your, your lack of empathy towards a brother or sister of color. What is a growth step for you today? Allow Christ to bring his transforming grace and empower you on the new way, the way of health, the way of reconciliation. Having been reconciled with God, we are now equipped and sent as ambassadors, as ministers of reconciliation in a hurting world. So in this passage, God confronts our sin. Second, God offers a way of forgiveness. And then thirdly and finally, God engages us, his forgiven people, in the work of reconciliation. Notice the repetition of Christians being commissioned for the ministry of reconciliation here. Verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, and God is making his appeal through us. An ambassador is a representative who's about the king's business. We need to be about the king's business. Speaking the word of the gospel, sharing the word of reconciliation with God possible through Christ. We need to be about that spoken message. We need to also embody it and image it in our relationships with people, particularly people that we're divided with. It's an inconsistency to preach the gospel and to live an unreconciled life with other human beings. It's a ministry of reconciliation, spoken and embodied. It's the chain reaction of reconciliation. Sinners who've been reconciled to God seek to be reconciled with people that they've hurt. Forgiven sinners ask forgiveness. Forgiven sinners forgive sin. People who've been given grace from God give grace to others, receive grace from others. And this grace is sufficient for every broken situation. If God, by his grace in Jesus Christ, can heal the most broken of all relationships, and that is the human-to-God relationship, there has never been a relationship so broken. If God in Christ can reconcile that relationship, friends, be encouraged. There's power for reconciliation in every other horizontal relationship between people. There is sufficient power in the gospel to bring reconciliation. We need to preach it. We need to share it. We need to seek to apply it in our own lives and families and culture. 
To this point, authors Matthew Hall and D.A. Horton write in their book, The Gospel and Racial Reconciliation, reconciliation between sinners and a holy God evidenced through interpersonal harmony is our life's clarion call. In order to change the cultural conversation on race, the church must gain credibility by having our lifestyle match the message of the gospel we proclaim. This can be achieved when we first take a look at our own individual sinfulness hiding in our hearts. Next, we make intentional efforts to have ongoing, honest, interpersonal communication with local believers from different cultures, ethnicities, generations, and socioeconomic backgrounds. While we engage in sincere dialogue, we must listen to the hearts of those to whom we are speaking and posture ourselves to learn from them. Let me repeat that last part. While we are engaged in sincere dialogue, we must listen to the hearts of those to whom we are speaking and posture ourselves to learn from that. And with that, I'm going to let somebody else finish this sermon. Earlier, I mentioned my relationship with Aaron Gray. He was a former elder of our church, former member of our church. Six years ago, Aaron and I did an interview on a Sunday morning where he just opened his own heart and shared about his experience as a black man. And I'd like to share a portion of that interview with you this morning so you can hear his heart. He was a constant encouragement to me, to so many in this church, to have healthy dialogue with people who look differently than you, but who share a bond in Jesus Christ that is even more powerful. You alluded to this, but how has the gospel of Jesus Christ sustained you, fueled you in the midst of this issue? Well, um, I think to to recognize the different schemes of the devil is important. And he uses whatever he can to break up all types of relationships. You know, whether it's marriages, whether it's relationships between, you know, parents and children's or whatnot. I mean, this is just another one of his tools that he uses to try to, you know, keep us apart and incite fear as opposed to having us look at and view each other, first of all, from our basic standpoint of humanity. You know, all of us, again, sermon, I'm not trying to preach your sermon, and I didn't, you don't want to say it, I'm coming up here finishing it. Um, with all of us being created in the image of God, when you're able to start there, then you can look at the humanity of the person and you can recognize not only are you not, you know, sin-free and trouble-free, but the person you're looking at, regardless to what their race, isn't going to be either. We all come with some troubles and some issues and some backgrounds. So we shouldn't allow that to be what divides us. We should, we should come, we, we should be able to look towards each other based on our humanity, but we should be able to come together based on what Christ has did and how Christ has transformed us. Because uh, my wife and I, when we recognized that we were going to have more than just one or two kids, we kind of sat down and said, okay, one, if we die together, we don't want our children separated. Who can take care of our kids? I got, a, I got an older sister, a younger sister. I got aging parents, a parent now. But at the time, aging parents, and we was like, we can't get these kids to just anybody. And the person or family that we landed on was actually um, a Caucasian family that was at our old church that was going to take all of our kids because they knew 
we felt that they would raise them with the understanding of who God is and how they have to live in light of that better than just about anybody else, better than our friends, better than some of our extended family members, whatever. And we knew those people would have been, you know, maybe okay, but we want them to know about Christ first. Um, and I'll say this and then I'll either give you another question or I'll close. But um, I feel more of a connection to my brothers and sisters in Christ than I do my fellow people that look like me. Because just like in your race, there's some good and some bad in your race. It's some good and some bad in mine, too. So I'm familiar with the crazy and the nasty and the ugly that's in my race. And I can kind of deal with it a little better than strange people that I don't know that stuff about. But at the same time, when, when I meet a brother or sister in Christ, regardless to their age, regardless to any of these other things, we share a commonality and a hope and an accountability under one God that, that really has unified us in a way that goes beyond just our surface familiarity with each other. We have a deep core connection. We are truly brothers and sisters because we honestly got the same dad. So, Amen. Amen, brother. Would you give me, help me give a hand, Aaron? Uh, we're going to just close by praying. Aaron, I'll start. You finish, okay? Jesus, thank you for a conversation. Thank you for your kindness and faithfulness and for you just to instill healing and reconciliation through conversation. And I thank you for Aaron's willingness to come and share with me this week on Tuesday night and to share with our congregation here on Sunday morning, Father. And we just pray that you would empower the conversation to continue to go forward, that we wouldn't operate out of fear, but out of faith, that we would lean into one another, love one another, pray for one another, and see our common bond in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. And Father, we thank you for the work that is already completed, Lord, that you already have reconciled us from our, our greatest separation, which is the separation from you. Lord, help us not to feel um, guilt or shame or worry uh, when it comes to race relations, Lord, but help us to understand that the real antidote for the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we are to love one another based on how you have loved us. So, Father, we pray that you uh, strengthen and empower us. Lord, help us to be, uh, as we are called, and even in our namesake, a beacon and a light for what it means, Lord, to, to love humanity and lord to to love your creation because we are in your image but also lord to to serve you well by loving and serving others lord in jesus name amen